You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. So, hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. I am Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. With me, as always, is old oh, what's his name? Richard Brown. That's me <laughs> from CUNY LaGuardia. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Greg D. Caruso is our special guest today on Space yeah. Time Mind. Thank you for having me. He is uh, he's a pretty cool guy, man. I got some stories about Greg. Oh, no. Let's Greg is, uh, <laughs> Greg is uh, professor of philosophy over at, uh, what is that place you're at? Corning Community College. Corning Community College. And you, uh, man, you are a very productive person for someone teaching at a community college. Cause you, yeah, you, lately. lately you, uh, you guys teach eight classes uh, every day or something. I, you guys are mighty. Yeah, <laughs> I, had, I had three back-to-back -back right before this. Yeah, that's very impressive. <laughs> my, you have my respect. And, mm -hmm. uh, and you also somehow find time to write uh, books like Free Will and Consciousness, a determinist account of the illusion of free will, mm -hmm. and then you've got some. Uh, then you did you did some stuff for uh, some edited things, right? Yeah. So there was uh, exploring the illusion of free will and moral responsibility with a pretty cool cast of characters: uh, Dirk Pirabum and uh, Neil Levy and Saul Smolensky and uh, uh, just Bruce Waller. Just every, oh, Galen Strawson. Don't you have a book with James Randi, the amazing uh, Randi, in it? Yeah, and so I have a new book. I have a new book. Uh, it's called Science and Religion, Five Questions, and it's a collection of interviews with 33 sort of the world's leading philosophers, scientists, uh, theologians, Christian apologists, and atheists. Uh, it's got people like Dan Dennett, Lawrence Krauss, James Randi, uh, but theologians like John Hodd and William Lane Craig, uh, it's got um, Robert Thurman, who uh, is Umar Thurman's father, but also right. one of the leading Buddhists in the yeah. world in America. And uh, Rabbi uh, David Wolpe, who's been called the most influential rabbi in America. And so it's a, it's a pretty cool. Oh, and Nobel Prize winning uh, theoretical physicist Charles Towns, who invented the laser. Wow. So, oh, cool. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty cool cast of characters. <laughs> That's you, got every, you got everyone except Pope Francis. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was busy. oh no, 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 no. You also you left out carrot top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, man. 
So, so is the is is this part of that? I mean, I assume it is. It's part of the series five questions because yeah, I know there yeah. was the five uh, questions about mind or whatever as well. Yeah, yeah and there's a, there's a bunch of really interesting ones, and uh, I was just really pleased to get the, the the contributors that I was able to get, and so. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, it's a fun read for sure. I know. I remember it's, I, this. What I was saying at the beginning of this when we were introducing you. It seems like just yesterday that you were telling me up that you were about to get this job. Yeah. Uh, at Brooklyn College, and you were saying you were going to get this job in Corning Community College, and now you're there. You're the chair of the department. You have three hundred thousand books. <laughs> no, no. So, three months, uh, in, three, months three years, though, and uh, <laughs> with a five with a five five load, that is not the most sane thing to do all the time. But right, and you were doing course development there too, and and oh uh, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, and I just started the journal. Um, yeah. Editor-in-Chief. Editor-in-Chief of Science, Religion, and Culture, which is a peer-reviewed open access journal, and so that's exciting, too. So exactly. Can... When, when you hear people, sometimes they complain about junior faculty being overburdened, and then they yeah, right. out they're, they're teaching a 3-3 load, and they've, like, they're publishing one paper every other year. Yeah. <laughs> then I think about people like you, Greg. I mean... Uh, and you. And you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, you know... Yeah, Richard, I, you're not, one of these guys, too. I wouldn't say I am, actually. I just... Uh, you're, I have on. to do something to avoid playing... I mean, to avoid playing video games, so... <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'd just be doing that. Um, but, yeah, no, it's a lot of work. Uh, and you only really do it if you if you love what you're doing. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of sad when you look forward to the summer so you can do work. <laughs> right. Uh, like I'm just I'm itching to to get to like these writing uh, record like these writing commitments I have, and I just can't do it until I get past these papers and the finals and stuff. So yeah, it's difficult, you know. Well, cool. So what's your deal? You you hate free will or something? Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm a free will skeptic. So. Um, I know. Have you been hearing the term "willusionist" thrown around lately? Are you someone who I hate that word, but I mean. Yeah, I don't like the term. Um, what, what's the deal with that word? I've been hearing a, a lot lately, though. Um, I take it that the term is usually applied. I'm taking it's usually narrowly applied to a certain set of neuroscientists who claim that the will is an illusion, and. I don't think it's generally applied to philosophers who hold these skeptical positions. Um, I think that the target is usually people like Sam Harris, like, uh, um, I'm trying to think of who usually, um, even outside of neuroscience, people like Jerry Coyne are sometimes included in there. What about like uh, John Dylan Haynes? I don't John know Dylan Haynes, right, yeah. So I take it that that, that term, um, it's, it's Eddie... Uh, Namius' uh, uh, term. I think uh, Temler Summers and others have, have have begged him to get rid of that term. Yeah, Which well, term? The wheel illusionist? Yeah, wheel illusionist. I don't necessarily like that term, but um, let me well, ask you. I want yeah. to ask you about the term free will skeptic. Yeah, is it the same? I mean, it's just a different word for the same idea, though, right? No, I, uh, I yeah, think... Yeah, why aren't you calling yourself a free will eliminativist or free will nihilist or something? Uh, I don't mind the eliminativist label. Um, okay. I'm working on a paper about reference right now and in uh, and free will, and uh, I might argue or use the term eliminativism in that paper in terms of uh, an attempt to give an eliminativist account of the concept of free will. But I take free will skepticism just to be a general position that you could put 
uh, you know, Dirk, uh, Dirk Piraboom, Neil Levy, uh, Gallen Strawson to the extent that he's a full skeptic, and Bruce Waller and myself under that label. I mean, basically it's the idea that who we are, what we do, is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control, and because of that we're not ultimately morally responsible for our actions. In the sense that would be required for a non-consequentialist, dessert-based conception of moral responsibility. Yeah. So that doesn't mean there are not other conceptions of moral responsibility that might be worth saving, and it's not to say that there are not uh, certain institutions of punishment and reward uh, that would have pragmatic benefit or consequentialist benefit. Um, for so those. can I just, because there's yeah. a lot of stuff that's flying by right there, can I just jump in here and ask, is this so, so free will skeptic, that's, so really what you're saying is that's, a name for a package of views because I heard like at least three different separable things that went under. Yeah, so let me, yeah let me maybe just say a little, like, obviously you know the main position who would have who would have denied free will in the past was what we, everyone called a hard determinist. Yeah. Right. The reason that most people don't walk around calling themselves hard determinist anymore is because not everyone is committed to determinism. Uh, and my view is not necessarily committed to determinism, even though it has it in the title of my book. Um, <laughs> sorry for another term, but I'm more what uh, Pierboom would call a hard incompatibilist. Yeah. So a hard incompatibilist thinks determinism is incompatible with free will, but so too is indeterminism, especially of the quantum mechanical variety. Yeah. So it's a kind of no free will either way view. Um, right. Right now, so because I, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to defend the quantum mechanical indeterminism stuff, although maybe not in the way that. That's a way to save free will. Yeah. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Wait, sorry, Richard, you're going to be pro free will today. I'm going to try to be. I mean, yeah, because I, I, I am pro free. I mean, look, I don't know what I, I don't have any settled opinion on this in the sense like I haven't written a paper on it and published it, and now I have to defend that yeah. view or anything like that. So I don't have like. A horse in the race, in in that sense, like Greg does, I think. Um, maybe even you, I, I, in your paper, control consci consciousness. You have some, some stuff about this in there, maybe that you com commit you to. The anyway, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's me. I wrote that. I wrote yeah. that paper. That's you, Pete. I'm talking to you. Oh, gosh, that sounds interesting. I wonder who wrote that. <laughs> anyway, so unlike you guys, I don't think I have a a. a you know, a, a public commitment, but I do have a personal commitment because for the way I got into philosophy is through Descartes um, yeah. and Sartre in particular, and I and I do think that uh, the phenomenology of free will, and I know this is something I, that we can talk about, Greg, okay. with you. Um, I think the phenomenology of freedom and choice making is very strong, um, and then the question then, of course, is how serious do you have to take that? Uh, so I think the Sartrean line, you know, we're radically free. I think that stuff is a good account of what it feels like to be a human being. Um, now the real question is whether that can be fit into the causal structure of the world in a way that makes sense, and whether also the phenomenology gives us good reasons to think that the world is this way. And so I, I guess this is partially where your skepticism yeah. might come from, right? Because yeah, you think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, let me say something. So like, yeah. there are people. Well, let me just say I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you about the phenomenology. In fact, most of the book is about an attempt to account for the phenomenology of free agency. Um, it's, it's interesting because almost everyone who's talked about the book has focused on the arguments against free will, which to me are generally not that novel, although I do spend a lot of time on the cognitive behavioral cognitive neuroscience stuff. Yeah. It's actually what I thought I was bringing to the table was somewhat of a co an account of the, what I would consider the cognitive illusion of that the phenomenology. Um, 
and I do it using uh, David Rosenthal's hot thesis combined with stuff from uh, the behavioral cognitive and neurosciences. So there are people out there who would deny there's this very strong phenomenology. I think that they're wrong about that. I'm in agreement with you uh, about that. So wait, uh, who denies it? I take my reading of Sam Harris's little book um, to be almost like if you were to introspect very carefully, maybe there's sort of a Buddhist take with him. You would actually feel as if you know everything is coming to you involuntarily, and so there really isn't this very strong phenomenology once you really get down into the weeds with it. Um, I think that there's more to phenomenology. I think there's a lot of components. I try to diagnose a number of different aspects of the phenomenology. For me, for example, uh, what contributes to it um, would be things like obviously a unified, robust, robust notion of the self. So I think self-consciousness is a contributing factor. I believe we have a phenomenology of conscious will. I think we have a phenomenology of the at least apparent transparency and infallibility of consciousness, or at least this feeling of, of sort of more direct access to our own you know, mental states. And I think there's a feeling of the, a feeling that our intentional states uh, arise spontaneously and are causally undetermined or only determined by the agent. Unlike yeah. an asymmetry with sensory states where we experience them as caused by states of the world. So right. what I try to do is at least with those four components that I think all contribute to the overall phenomenology of free agency to go through and explain, in my view at least, how they're all illusions and how they could all be accounted for by combining a proper theoretical understanding of consciousness with stuff in the behavioral cognitive neurosciences. So just to, just to say, though, one thing, I, I agree with you that if you look at the literature, unlike the, the, the only real exception, well, maybe there's more than I shouldn't just say this, but there's very, very few accounts given out there of how the illusion of free will arises, if it's a conscious, cognitive, phenomenological illusion. There's been a lot of people since ancient times arguing that we don't have free will. But in the literature, you really only find Daniel Wegner with his account in his book, uh, uh, The Illusion of, of Conscious Will. Um, and the general story has just been a very simple one. Oh, we're just not aware of the causal determinant factors that you know, determine our choices. I think there's a, I think if you're going to deny free will and you're going to deny the phenomenology, the burden is on you to account for the phenomenology. Right. But wait a minute. I mean, I'm not super familiar with the Wegner thing, but um, yeah. it, it strikes me as kind of similar to a strategy that um, Dennett adopts in um, uh, a, a slightly different debate about the contents of consciousness, and that has to do with how replete or detailed the contents of consciousness are. Okay. And, um, you know, um, so th this ties into, like, the debate about, like, filling in, and, and I don't know yeah, if you guys yeah, are yeah. familiar with that kind of stuff. And, and what Dennett does there is, this, is to say something along the lines of th there's a distinction between um, it's, uh, seeming, it's seeming to you to be determinate, mm -hmm. having, like, a determinate content, versus it's just not seeming to you right. to be indeterminate. So mm -hmm. he emphasizes the way in which with um, uh, if, you th if you think about the way language represents states of affairs mm -hmm. and like the classic uh, speckled hen problem, um, uh, uh, something that, that is like sentential or linguistic, it can represent that the hen has speckles 
And it could just be silent about whether the number of speckles is some determinate number or not. It just doesn't say. Yeah. Um, so it's not like it seems to you that the, the, the hen has an indeterminate number of speckles. It just doesn't... It doesn't seem to you like it has 10. Right, yeah. And so, um, so I, you know, I'd be inclined to say about the phenomenology of free will, it's, it's not so much that uh, the way it seems to us in consciousness that our... Um, it, it, right, it doesn't seem like it's our, our actions are uncaused. Mm-hmm. That would be like a positive seeming of an absence. It doesn't seem like it's uncaused. It just no. fails to seem caused. And yeah. I don't see why that isn't a perfectly adequate description of the phenomenology. Well, I think that that's part, maybe one part. Yeah, that's and one I, part. I, and I would agree that that is a significant part, and I agree even with that distinction. I think, though, there's more to that. When you look at, for example, uh, and you guys have probably studied this stuff, the literature on breakdowns in self-consciousness, alien hand syndrome, inserted thought, uh, cases of schizophrenia, um, where you have these breakdowns of... There's two. There's actually multiple components to this phenomenology. So that I think there's an ownership and an authorship sort of aspect to self-consciousness where... Are those supposed to be two different things? Yeah, I th- yeah. well, I... Ownership and authorship? There are people who actually argue you can, they can come apart. Like, okay. so, for example, if I, with alien hand syndrome, I may feel no authorship, but I might still feel ownership over the hand. I might right. feel as if it's my hand, but I don't You're have... You're moving my hand, right. Yeah. Okay. And I think you need... And, and inserted thought, there's kind of an opposite. I don't even feel ownership. These thoughts belong to Sam. Yeah. You know, they're Sam's thoughts. They're just in my consciousness. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> and, and so, and you have to sort of account for both of those. But I, I think that, for example, people don't feel agency in those cases. So it's more than just this feeling of being undetermined. I think there's an active feeling of okay. self-conscious. Yeah. yeah. And a no, robust, I agree. A robust unified self that is behind that too. Well, I, I would say I wouldn't say robust unified self, although maybe you could you could load all that baggage onto the the, the cart, but yeah. something like the agent, the person, there's a person there. So um, how robust, I don't know how, I, I mean, I think you can do it with human notions of selves. I mean, yeah, well, I, I think, I think when you talk about the realities, that's the answer. And I think that, you know, one criticism against Hume's, Hume's, I think when you look at like David Rosenthal's account of self-consciousness and his way of, of accounting for it, he does try to. What do you account- mean, his new way or old way? Well, maybe I'm unaware of a new new way. I don't know if there's a. a, a well, what is the way? What's yeah. the way you're talking about? Well, like he has this stuff about the essential indexical. That yeah, essential indexical. The I and the I think I'm seeing blue or whatever. According there's to a him. heterogeneous sense of which we then go through in terms of identifying those. Um, uh, in, in a kind of, uh, and I, my view would be some kind of post hoc a priori a causal account. So, for example, if you, you know, I have to pick out my individual sensory, my individual states as sort of belonging to an individual. Right. And that might account for the ownership part. But how do you account for the authorship part? The authorship part for me would be a, a little bit of the Wegner stuff where if intentional states, uh, precede the actions and voluntary cases. Uh, I think his three conditions are uh, uh, priority, consistency, and why am I forgetting the third? But the intentional states have to come before the actions, 
to feel a causal connection be between them. Um, they have to be, uh, there have to be no other conditions under which you would, you know, I think uh, there would be no exclusionary conditions where there might be alternative better explanations for the cause of the actions. Priority, consistency, and... Can uh, while you're remembering that, can I just say really yeah. quickly the Rosenthal, the Rosenthal thing, because w one of the things that he does in his recent paper on this stuff, which is in the, the Perry and Wu book, I think, um, uh, it, he says, "Well, look. What does it mean to say that there, that every time you have a, a, a self con that you're you know have a self self thought or what I don't know what they're called a self referring thought um, mm -hmm. that the I refers to you? His claim is simply that it's in virtue of a disposition that the subject would have to identify yeah. themselves as the one who's having the thought or the or the state. Mm -hmm. So so that when it's you have in yeah." There's a lot that goes into that because what you know what's going on in the invert in the inserted thought cases and stuff. Why isn't that we don't ascribe that? And there might be all kinds of explanations. Well, that's uh, exactly right. But so that and that's one of the benefits of his story is that it allows uh, mm -hmm. a way that you could have this kind of uh, failure um, because a lot of people want to really preserve this idea that there's um, an infallibility with respect to first-person identification. Yeah. Oh, um, right. Yeah. And and Rosenthal wants to deny that, and his Absolutely. account gives a way to to give a story about that. So and, that well, that's what I was saying to you, though, Greg, is that it's not clear how robust the notion of the self needs to be, because mm -hmm. this Rosenthalian notion is not very robust. It's simply the disposition of the creature to say, "Oh, yeah, it was me having the thought." So sure. when, so what is it? What makes the thought about you? It's just that. Now that's yeah. not a very robust notion of the self. But then you know, then we pick ourselves out in these various you know uh, heterogeneous ways. And you can actually, with different causal stories, explain why people would attribute various actions to other selves or not take uh, take it as the cause of the agent themselves. Uh, even though, in terms of a you know, in an external account, we could attribute the alien hand actions to the to the agent. Yeah. Um, it doesn't. It's not. It's not accompanied with any feelings of voluntariness, and it's not like a sporadic twitch or anything, right? These you could be buttoning your shirt with one hand and unbuttoning it with the one right behind it, or these patients say, "I'm going to let my cup of coffee cool down. It's too warm," and then they pick it up and they're like fighting their own hand. Uh, right. um, it's very sophisticated behavior that you can carry out, um, but there's without the sense of ownership and well. Maybe in this case, no sense of agency, but a sense of ownership. So let me let me ask you a question from uh, kind of the, the Rosenthal point of view that is is coming from um, uh, explanation of consciousness, and yeah. direct this towards your view on, on free will. So uh, one way in which uh, Rosenthal would describe the, the hot theory of consciousness, the, the higher order thought theory of consciousness, is that it's ex explaining um, what it's trying to explain in explaining state consciousness is it's explaining a kind of appearance. It's explaining the um, mind's, the subjective appearance of the mind to itself or to one's self. And, uh, you know, just to be really, really simplified uh, the explanation is is I have certain kind of thoughts yeah. if I if I have a certain kind of thought about my own mental states so I uh, I have a higher thought it's higher order because it's about mental states so I so I, I think that I'm perceiving a green shamrock then the way my um, 
my mind is going to seem to me, it's going to seem to me like I'm perceiving a green shamrock. And there you go. I have explained the appearance of the, my mind to myself. This is the way things appear to me subjectively with respect to my mind, as opposed to, say, the way the world appears to me. That wouldn't really be about consciousness. But the way my mind appears to me, there you go. We're explaining consciousness. We're explaining the appearance. Now, um, I think that's actually a pretty good theory of consciousness. And um, uh, Rosenthal doesn't go around saying consciousness is an illusion. And uh, maybe he's right to do so, that um, in explaining uh, consciousness, you're explaining a kind of appearance, but you haven't thereby come up with a theory whereby consciousness is just kind of an illusion. And maybe sure. this is just rhetoric, or maybe there's something deep going on. No, here. no, no, no. But why, I get what you're saying. But why I mean, don't you say that what you're doing is in explaining the appearance? Wait, just let me finish real quick. Yeah. Uh, in I just like squeezed your head with my hand. Uh, <laughs> watching the video. Um, why not say like, look, what you're doing is you're ex explaining the appearance of our uh, free will. Um, you know what it is to appear free, and then there you go. But it's not an illusion. We're not under the illusion that we're. we're yeah, not, I don't take I don't take explaining the phenomenology away as sufficient in itself to establish that it's an illusion. Okay. So I think you know I think you need. Well, wait. How do you mean explain it away? Well, so first of all, I, I think that it, you need independent philosophical arguments against free will, um, whether those be purely philosophical or some or empirical or a mixture of philosophical and empirical. Uh, depending on you know what you take to come out of this stuff in the behavioral cognitive neurosciences, but I argue you have to have certain arguments against free will first, right? And then I take it as a well, you know, you get this argument that Richard presented before, um, and not to put words in Richard's mouth or this is not Richard's position, but in a very simple, basic kind of introspective argument for free will, it's kind of like I feel myself free, therefore I am. Yeah. And that argument, I, I think, just fails. Um, I mean, Why? one, we all, for very good reasons, we know that phenomenological experiences are not always reliable guides to metaphysical realities. I think, you know... Uh, well, if, hold on. Wait, hold, hold, just wait a second. <laughs> it's too fast here. Uh, metaphysical realities, so that's one thing, yeah, but I mean... They don't have to be veridical, I guess is what I mean. Exactly, but they, I mean, non-veridicality is one thing. Um, uh, not having the phenomenology is another thing. Right, and I think we do have the phenomenology. So my, you my explain it away. I'm I'm just what do you, I'm not sure why you said you explaining the phenomenology away. Well, because like Rosenthal's account, I think Rosenthal is always more. I could be, you know, you guys know Rosenthal <laughs> better or as good as I do. Um, that what you need to preserve is the phenomenological appearances, um, and it isn't always the case that that those appearances are how things actually are. I mean, right. uh, and, and so there's a sense in which Rosenthal is, as, as Pete pointed out, really concerned with capturing the phenomenology. Um, and so things like the phenomenology of the apparent spontaneity of intentional states, there seems to be this asymmetry between intentional states and sensory states. I don't feel like I have free will over sensations of red or the tree I see when I look out my office window, right. but I do on intentional states. But is that is that asymmetry real, or is there is there a way of explaining that asymmetry in capturing the phenomenology, yeah. but that allows you at the same time to say it's not it's not it's not accurate. Can I, can I try to put it maybe in this way? So 
because um, I would, so you start from the other way. I think people who are skeptics like you probably always start that way. So first you start with the like, let me convince you that everything's determined. <laughs> and that's, that's the argument from cognitive neuroscience or behavioral neuroscience for you, right? That, oh, there's no room in here for anything going on that looks free. Uh, uh, he's a hard he's incompatibilist. I'm a hard incompatibilist, but yeah. That's, well, exactly. So there's no, no room in there for anything that could be free and, and are not. Uh, yeah, I, not you, just because of determinism. That's right. Yeah. Well, whatever. So I mean, that's a distinction. Yeah. That's, not, <laughs> that's not relevant because you mean something by indeterminism. That yeah, if I meant that, if if normal people who believe in free will meant that, then we could dismiss them. But that's not what they mean. We're we're gonna get to that someday. Okay. But so often people will start there. Look, there's no room, and you can start with the brain, or you can start with physics, or you can start with God's foreknowledge. I mean, people do this in various ways. Oh, yeah. um, whereas people who like free will usually start with the phenomenology. That's and right. so, so the person who's the godfather of all this is William James. I, I yeah. you know, he's the person who's, who basically gives a version of that simple argument. I, I can tell I'm free, so I'm free, damn it. Um, and so, so the question now, you say you want to start here, convinced that there isn't such a thing, and then explain away the phenomenology, where someone else might say, well, you start here with the phenomenology, and then you wonder, uh, is it right? So there's two, two models. One is that. The phenomenology is uh, misleading about the reality, and mm -hmm. the other um, is, and you might say, radically misleading. Like not just, not just like it looks, you know, ovalish when it's really circular, um, mm -hmm. but radically misleading. Like that, it appears as though it's free, but it's really fully not. Um, where, whereas the other view, you know, uh, so that's one view that it's misleading, and the other view claims no, that it's generally right. Um, that there's something that, that as is usually the case, and again, I don't care what your theory of consciousness is. Yeah. If you like Rosenthal, that's fine. Usually you, it gets it right. Um, usually it gets it right, and there are these weird cases where it gets it wrong, and you can give an account for why that happens, uh, and that may do some explanatory work, and that's useful. But that does, it doesn't, just because you appeal to a theory of consciousness, that doesn't mean that, oh, well, now I've, you know, now I've sure. shown you that it has to be a mistake and that no, you're no, wrong, no, no. that the phenomenology doesn't tell you that you're really making these decisions. I, I, I was just trying to say that you, you often have the phenomenology as a hurdle. If you deny free will, people often feel as if you left unexplained one of the yeah. things they care most about, which is their experience. Right. Um, if, you, if you can give them a plausible account of the experience that's consistent with denying free will, it removes one of the remaining hurdles, I think, in the way. Right, um, or it, the other thing, it... Um, <laughs> It lowers the plausibility of the thing you use to explain. Because well, I mean, is the higher order theory plausible? You, Most people think that's insane to begin with. I mean, I'm not one of them, but you start with the phenomenology, and I'm still not sure where you stand yet. So you start with the phenomenology, and do we end up with libertarianism, or do we end up with a compatibilist account? So I guess I I'm compatible. Like I have different arguments so. against. Hey, what? What did you just say? Compatibilism is bullshit. Okay. Well, so you're a libertarian. Okay. Um, well, if I'm, in, I'm either a I'm either like a hard incompatibilist like you, Greg, which just seems crazy to me, or I'm a libertarian, which also seems crazy to me. Could be, and I think free will's hard. So I mean, I don't have it. Like I said, yeah. I have radical Sartrean intuitions. I do. Yeah. I harbor them, mm -hmm. and I think that uh, it's an open question whether the free will, uh, uh, whether the phenomenology which goes with that is accurate or not. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, it's not a closed book case in my, in my I don't think that we have anything which definitively rules out libertarianism um, and physical I'm a, I mean yeah and physicalism so well, I, mean, I, I hope we get to talk about Greg's stuff about uh, reference because by, by the way I am a, 
a compatibilist. And, and a lot of the way I think about this is in terms of, um, you know, I guess the background of uh, concerning reference, you know, reference of, uh, of terms like free will. But can we, well, so why, well, so what's great about compatibilism is like a cheat because what you, you say is, look, I'm a, so compatibilism is like the eliminativism of the consciousness debates in the free will debate. So a compatibilist is someone who comes yeah. along and goes, hey, guys, I like free will. Uh, yeah, and by which I mean it's fully determined, okay? No, yeah, no, no, Richard, like We've eliminated right. free will and defined something else. The free will skeptics are the eliminativists. I'm, like, like, I'm like the person that says um, uh, atoms exist, <laughs> even though we've discovered that they're not indivisible. There's right. still such a thing as Adam, and right. there's a certain way of thinking about reference where it's not um, it, it it's not governed by um, these these uh, these prior descriptions that we could that we could revise the descriptive content, but we still are referring to the same thing all along, and we just say like, well, we used to uh, we used to a bunch of these beliefs that we ha we used to have. We've discovered those are false beliefs. Gee, so, that's so interesting, Pete, because I didn't know that we had verified Aristotle's theories of of hylomorphism in this fantastic way. That now we know that bodies accelerate towards the Earth because they possess the form of the heavy, just like Aristotle said, right? I don't get the connection. What do you uh, yeah, neither do I, because that's what you just said. That if we don't, we didn't, we didn't, we don't, um, we didn't discover that there are atoms. We thought we discovered that there were atoms in the Greek sense, and then we found out they weren't atoms in the Greek sense. So, well, I could tell you an example. That, you know, people um, they introduce the term whale to refer yeah. to a certain kind of fish. It's this really big fish. Yeah. And then they find they find out later that it's not a fish. Did they say, oh, I guess it wasn't a whale? Or do they say, oh, I guess we were wrong about okay. whether whales had to be fish? Well, the way, I mean, I'm the causal theorist in this respect, so you latch on to the thing you're talking about and, yeah. you, and you pick that thing out. Uh, right, so we latch on to the thing that, you know, governs uh, moral judgments and moral responsibility, and, uh, and we discover a bunch of really weird things about that. Like, for example, it's, it's uh, compatible with determinism. <laughs> yeah. We don't say like, oh, oh, we get rid of. I guess we should stop using the word free will. We should eliminate. Yeah, I mean, it. We should say that free will doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, but, let me jump in. I mean, there's, there's, the, the position known as revisionism is out there. Um, I don't know if you guys are that familiar with the work of uh, uh, Manuel Vargas, but he's a revisionist, right? So yeah, I've been reading this debate on the blog at Flickr's. Yeah, yeah, and so there's, there's, there's. Uh, Vargas's revisionism, and then there's a lot of good work coming out. Um, uh, uh, Sean Nichols, ha actually in my edited collection, has a really great article, if you're interested in this stuff, Pete, on reference. Um, and so what I'm going to essentially try to do is maybe try to argue a little, against, a little bit against Nichols, but, I mean, he's brilliant, by the way. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so the landscape is kind of more difficult, and I agree with you on that. So when you... With who? The, with Pete on this, that the revisionists, the revisionists say, look, even if our folk psychological accounts about free will turn out to be wrong on a descriptive or diagnostic, that doesn't tell us what to do on the prescriptive end of things. So Vargas has a distinction between a diagnostic and a prescriptive task. Diagnostically, he actually thinks the folk psychology is wrong. It picks out something that doesn't exist. But that doesn't mean we should do away with the term because revisionism is open. Right. And you have all of these cases uh, in in uh, scientific theorizing where um, we have gone revisionist. 
instead of yeah, eleven. Yeah, not over stuff like this though. I mean, this is like the dirty, no, 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 right. the lowest dirty moves that any philosopher has ever tried to pull on a normal person is to right. come along and say, "Hey, you normal person, you've neglected an option in debate about free will. Here's the cool option. There's no free will, but we'll say there is." Well, no. Cool. I mean, the, idea, the idea is that, like, we've done it with we've done it with whales. We've done it with, with nothing you know, important. Nothing important. Wait, wait. Whales are important. No, whales are not important in this sense. What about you race? Star Trek Four, dude. Whales are really important. <laughs> Space whales. Yeah. <laughs> I stand corrected. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Yeah. We. Actually... The argument from Star Trek Four wins of the day. Let me let me try this out on you guys because I'm I'm still working this out. Right? No, I'm just saying if you go to a normal person on the street and you say to them. Look, the word we've discovered this about free will that it's compatible with determinism. First of all, you have to explain a lot of stuff. But if they ever come to understand out what you mean, they're either going to be angry or, well, probably just angry. I mean, well, no one, I mean, no, no one is doing this view. speculative experimental philosophy right now, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a normal person. As a human being on planet Earth, we don't want to be told that. This that this thing which isn't free. I mean, that's like here you go. But isn't there a fight a bunch of people in experimental philosophy going on right now about like what the folk intuitions are Absolutely, about free will? Yeah, yeah but <laughs> experimental philosophers first need to learn how to do statistics, and then need to learn learn how to design experiments, and then I'll give a shit about what they're doing. Hmm. So no, I, wouldn't. <laughs> oh, I, I would, and I just did. <laughs> oh man! All right. <laughs> Let me run this argument. See if you, if you, uh, what you guys think They're of it. I, you, I, I haven't worked it out yet. Here I am. <laughs> um, so let me see if I can even paraphrase it correctly. So Nichols um, says there's all different kinds of ways to look at reference. Obviously, um, you have the free will eliminativists like Pureboom and Strassen who say um, since our beliefs about free will uh, oh, turn out not to be correct, we should be eliminativists and there's no free will. Then you have the revisionists who say our beliefs about free will turned out to be wrong, but that doesn't bar us from still saying we have free will by revising concepts, right? Um, and then he says, well, look, you could you could look at description, descriptive accounts of reference, uh, causal historical baptism accounts of reference, right? So if we took a descriptive account of reference and we said these bundle of descriptions turned out to be on the whole largely false, well, then you the option is to largely go eliminativist. Um, Right. But if you take a causal baptism account or a causal historical account, it could be much more like whales. Yeah. Um, and and Nichols, I think, has done some interesting empirical work where he's actually shown that people are pluralistic about reference, that they actually will employ certain um, certain referential uh, concepts to apply in certain situations, and they'll choose different ways of. Uh, you know, reference stories in other cases, and he says because of this general plural plurality about reference, and because maybe there are good pragmatic reasons and concerns to preserve, you know, moral responsibility and the such, um, you know, we don't have to go eliminativist here, right? We could we could adopt. Now, my view is to try to box them in a little bit by saying, well, if we go descriptive. I think, in, at least on his view, he agrees that uh, that would lead to eliminativism. I'm not sure if that's correct, but let's just take that branch of the dilemma off and say, if the you know bundle of descriptions turns out to be you know wrong, maybe we should be eliminativist about this concept. But what about the causal historical direction? My my 
my one way of thinking about it is that maybe he's underestimating the role of phenomenology and to go back to our earlier conversation. If I can make an argument that part of the causal historical baptism is to a phenomenological understanding. Yeah, I was going to make that argument. Yeah, no, I think not just to a cultural set of practices surrounding moral responsibility. Right. I would think that maybe if you do think about it in terms of primitive people and pre-scientific worldviews, you know, coming to what this concept was initially baptized with, phenomenology seems to make a lot of sense, perhaps, that 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 arm of the dilemma may also lead to a limitism. If you can show that there's no, uh, so you first have to accept this problematic first premise that you've somehow shown that there's no free will, which, yeah, right. right. But if, if you if you have shown that, then I agree. Then you cannot be a compatibilist and have a straight and hold a straight face and present yourself as an honest academic. You can't do it. Well, there's a lot of good compatibilism. <laughs> Just watch me, mother. Well, you can't. People, it's <laughs> sneaky. People know that people know it as soon as you're doing it. People don't accept it. <laughs> I'm not a compatibilist. Yeah, I don't buy it. I got lots of students who are. Compatibilists. That's because they like you and they want to please you. So they they say that while you. No, they hate my guts, man. (laughs) Students do not like me. (laughs) Yeah, right. We're up on the on the time where we need to take a break. We will be right back. today or not usually i don't whatever it doesn't really matter doesn't matter every decision we make opens up a universe of possibilities i put it to you that as sentient beings each choice we make is precious well in that case don't wear them ah who asked you and now we're back from the break okay so um so what do you think of that though p because i think that greg's right here basically that the if the the causal historical thing that we pick out is not, as you said, the thing which is important for moral responsibility, although that's part of it, I think, but really the thing which is identified phenomenologically as the sense of agency, control, or whatever, that kind of stuff we were talking about earlier. Um, yeah, I guess I, I, I'm not quite getting, I'm not quite getting what, what Greg was saying about focusing on phenomenology instead of Something. What I was going to say is there could be a, a dilemma. Place. Like, I think one way he tries to preserve – so you have – let me use preservationism and eliminativism, right? So yeah. we're preservationist about whales and atoms, but we're eliminativist about witches. Right. right? And, um, and logistic. But it might be because we're employing different kinds of conceptual uh, 
uh, ways of viewing it, we, we seem to be employing a descriptive account for witches, and that's why we become eliminativists about them. Um, where maybe with whales and atoms, we're employing a causal historical account. Right. Now, if, if, if descriptivism can lead to a eliminativist for free will, let's put that aside. What about the causal historical? Does that, does that point towards preservationism? And my, my possible argument, I'm still working it out, is that okay. maybe you can make an argument for eliminativism on that route too, if what the baptism is, or how the concept was originally baptized, was baptized largely by with some important, significant role of phenomenology here. So something, something that would um, make these appearances accurate, something that would be a. Yeah, I mean, instead of a set of causal, instead of a set of cultural practices surrounding moral responsibility, it could be a chicken and egg problem. Where do these practices arise from? Maybe yeah. they arise originally from our sense of free will in the first place, so we hold agents responsible. Or it could go the other way. It's a very hard story to to know. Is it going to? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, if you can make a case that the baptism is is made in reference to phenomenology, and if we could generally agree that there's some, you know, is it uh, going to matter? Is it? Sorry, Greg, I keep trying to cut you off. Go ahead. No, go. No, go ahead. Is you know. it going to matter for your project if if uh, which way uh, things go vis-a-vis -vis the theory ladenness of phenomenology? So suppose, for example, phenomenology is just massively theory laden. Yeah. How you know how things seem to you is just totally um, a consequence of what theory you happen to believe, and a lot of different people are walking around with a lot of different theories about yeah what free will is. Is that going to mess up your project, or is your project proceed either way? I no, I mean I think it matters. I think it does matter. I mean there are there are some people who defend a compatibilist reading of the phenomenology. Um, I'm trying to remember, uh, is it Terence Horgan? One of those guys I think spends a lot of time defending a reading of the phenomenology, largely along what you're saying. People who claim like what I'm claiming are yeah. claiming more than what the phenomenology actually provides. There's some theory aspects to this. Um, well, yeah, I would also say that you know, it's, so, a lot of this discussion is at, we're talking as though like most, if not all, actions are free, mm -hmm. um, uh, which wouldn't be my view. My view would be that probably only um, some subset of the actions we perform are are free in the in the in the, in the, in the sense that matters here. Um, and even if it were only the case that sometimes under very special conditions they were free in that sense, that would be fine with me. Um, and so the ph phenomenology, like, is everything, I don't know, uh, do, I, do I always feel like I'm acting freely? I don't know, but I think I can nail down times when it was very clear phenomenologically that uh, there was a decision made by me, the agent, um, which somehow produced, I don't know what, an intention or something. That, I'm, I mean, so even if there's, I, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that you don't have to defend this claim that, oh, this, this very strong phenomenological claim. All you have to do is say, Look, there are some some times where you're standing there watching the lion about to go for the throat of your cousin's girlfriend's best friend, and you are thinking, "Oh, I got to get the fuck out of here. Do I say the person or not?" And in those kind of moments, I, I I just say like nothing could be clearer than that you are in control of what happens next. Um, now, whether that's a general case of every situation of that sort, or whether there's only some cases like that, that to me is the thing I want to hang my hat on and and go to the mat for. 
Um, not this other more general thing that all the time is phenomenal. Yeah, 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 and I think that your phenomenological argument, uh, you tie it to that. Like in those moments, you're picking something out. That's what we mean in the most basic sense about when we say free will. And so if that thing turns out it's not there, I say you have to be honest and eliminate it. Or you have to look, you know, try to figure out how that thing fits into the world. Now, I think we can try to make some, tell some stories about that, but I don't know ultimately whether they're consistent or not. But I think that's where the challenge is. Richard, what do you think of the of the? There's a class of arguments for uh, determinism, and I guess some some compatibilists like them, and they're these really old uh, greatest preference arguments. Some people call this ethical determinism, but it's just, uh -huh. you know, like you you always like. Whatever you do, it's the thing that you have the greatest desire to do, and so you're. Uh, it's your. It's not someone else's desire. It's your desire, but your right. desire is compelling you to pick. Can I? Can I bring? It. Can I bring consciousness back into that though? Please, because yeah. we love consciousness. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, let me let me I mean let me lay out exactly why I would reject compatibilism. I mean, I reject compatibilism maybe for two reasons, uh, maybe three, but. I think there are external arguments and internal arguments you could run, and maybe we should, I would like to hear what you guys think about some of the internal stuff. I don't think it's as persuasive, but the external arguments would just be all the traditional classical arguments against compatibilism, right? And those could be, and there's lots of them from different areas. Uh, Neil Levy has a great book on luck, you know, and uh, Callan Strassen an article a long time ago about how luck swallows everything. It doesn't have to be determinism, right? Um, but you have these arguments like Pure Boom's four case arguments. You have the consequence argument. You have the zygote argument. So there's external arguments. But then I think there are problems that compatibilists typically don't address, and it's partly because they don't seem to care that much about consciousness, which is there's internal challenges about can they meet their own stated criteria given what we're learning from the behavioral cognitive and neurosciences. So the Who's they here, the compatibilist? Yeah, so the internal challenge would be one of the threat of shrinking agency, um, where I'm not talking as much about the neuroscience. When people talk about scientific challenges to free will, they always focus on Libet and John Dylan Hayes, and and whatever you think about that, let's set that aside. I think the real threat comes from the behavior, from from social psychology, stuff on automaticity, the adaptive unconscious, and situationism, right? So Just like the pantyhose experiment. Yeah, I mean, you could talk about Wilson, the, the Nibbet and Wilson classic okay. stuff, but if it turns out that many of the conscious reasons we give for why we do what we do are more post hoc, retrodictive kind of, you know, reconstructions instead of, you know, uh, transparent insights into the true causes, um, we, we, we might have conditions that are hard to meet for certain compatibilist accounts. So if you have like a reasons responsive account, is it the fact that one has to maintain or defend a certain account of transparency and accuracy of the reasons that we give ourselves in consciousness? So if every, like, I'm not saying everything is confabulation, right? But we could run through a number of these examples um, where consciousness seems relevant, right? So can I give you like three can we, can categories? Can we focus on the pantyhose experiment? Yeah, so the pantyhose experiment, you have, you know, four pairs of pantyhose, A, B, C, and D. And you ask women, which do you prefer and why? And they prefer D uh, overwhelmingly. And you ask them why, and they say things like elasticity, comfort, whatever pantyhose appeals to you. Turns out they're all identical. 
right? So the I thought real... it was white socks. The version, maybe it's a different version of the same thing, but I thought it was just the white socks. The original one was pantyhose, and then there's been a Wilson classic. Yeah, it's pantyhose. I like uh, socks, though, better. But it probably works with socks have as well. Have you tried pantyhose? Uh, I have. They're, they're comfortable. <laughs> but it's a, it's a positioning effect. We simply have an un unconscious bias to prefer things in the rightmost position. So what you've done is you've you basically make a decision because of a positioning yeah. effect, which you're unaware of. And in fact, post hoc, you'd probably deny had any effect. That's even important too. And then you give me your reasons. We know that these reasons are all confabulations, right? Because there's no difference between A, B, C, and D. Mm -hmm. um, if it turns out that the reasoning I'm giving is confabulated in this way, um, and the true causes for why I'm choosing D is simply a positioning effect, um, now there might be compatibilist accounts that could totally account for this. Um, but I think that they have to really start getting into the empirical work on situationism, automaticity, the adaptive. So, so Greg, can I? Is, is so? Can I? I'm trying to figure out what your argument is because I, I mean, I hate compatibilism so much that it's almost hard for me to even pretend like yeah. I might be one and try to figure out what your argument against them is. But is this? Is the claim this that the compatibilists? So they they will say things like, look, you know. Um, the one reason why I'm still using the word free will is because I'm talking about how um, actions are responsive to reasons in the following sense, that if I judge something to be a good reason to do something, then that's going to enhance the likelihood that I'll do it or something like that. So they'll claim, oh, that's a kind of, of will or control um, that still makes sense to use those terms because I have the reason, I'm responsive to the reason in the right way, and that affects my behavior. So hey, I, I could go around pretending like there's still free will. I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There really is still free will. I'm a compatibilist now. Mm -hmm. um, and your argument now is okay, but if if the social empirical literature is correct, then you might think that you're reason responsive in the right way when you're not, and therefore that casts doubt on on their uh, claiming to save the thing that's still important, the reason responsiveness. Is that the way your this argument's going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are more, there are different compatibilist accounts. The interesting thing about compatibilists is that they don't all agree about what's required for one to be morally responsible. So, some like Fisher have reasons responsive accounts. Frankfurt has a hierarchical account that right. the difference between me and the drug addict is I approve of my lower order desires, where the drug addict doesn't approve of their lower order desires. There are deep self accounts that the action has to be reflective of one's, you know, assessed and expressive true self. You know, right. yeah, uh, and so there are different, and I think though there's a book coming out by Neil Levy, who argues that whether they say it or not, these people are all committed to a consciousness thesis. Now wait and a minute. Consci the consciousness thesis for Neil Levy is that um, people have to be conscious of certain key features of their actions, at least the ones that give their actions moral significance, uh, and that is a necessary condition for moral responsibility. Um, and there are people who reject the consciousness thesis completely because this new stuff in the empirical, you know, social psychology literature, situationism, seems to show us that's clearly not the case. Lots of times we confabulate or we don't have transparent awareness. By so, well, by, by, hold, by, so just as a big giant parenthesis in the middle of this, how reliably reproduces that social psychology literature? Because I have heard rumors that some of it some of the more striking results aren't reliably reproduced, but I don't follow it closely enough to I know. I think it depends on which ones. Uh, some of them have been reproduced you know, extremely well. There's some replication problems, I think, or claimed issues with some of John Barg's research, which I 
I've spent, a, I've actually used a lot in my book, so, you know, I don't know what, where the status of some of those. But I, I'm not sure about how important consciousness is here, but let, let's fo go back to pantyhose. So, like, uh, um, so what if I were to say that, that uh, the ladies are, you know, it could have been me. I mean, I chose some pantyhose, and uh, um, I did it freely. I just was, you know, why did I do it freely? Ask uh, you ask the compatibilist what what was free about it. Well, I did what I wanted to do. Yeah. I did what I wanted to do. My action was caused by my desire, not someone else's desire. Uh, it was my desire that caused it. So that was that was a free action as opposed to something that I was you know forced to do or was done against against my will. Um, and w and what the uh, it's Nisbet and Wilson stuff shows is that I'm just I, I am often wrong about what I want. What I really want are pantyhose that are on the right side. Yeah. <laughs> I think I want pantyhose that are smoother or, uh, uh, you know, stronger. Those are some of the, the confabulatory things that the, uh, the the subject said in the experiment. But uh, they chose the ones on the right uh, because they they want things that are on the right. Um, so they they freely chose the pantyhose. Is are there no compatibilists that that defend that? Yeah, I think there are, um, and I think. Levy would have his book would have to argue that they're wrong about the fact that they need to be at least aware of. Well, maybe not in this case. I actually asked Le, uh, Neil Levy about this. I th maybe he would be fine with your example um, because really only the only necessary condition on his consciousness thesis are to be aware of the key features that make the action morally significant, and maybe the features that you're pointing out are not ones that need to be conscious, right? So. Maybe maybe it's totally okay to say this person is free, even on his consciousness requirement. Um, and the, then you know, like I, I want to bring in libit. We re, I mean we can't talk about free will and, and illusions and consciousness without the libit. Well, let me. Let me he mentioned libit already. I thought we were going to ignore libit. Let me let me let me. Sorry, just, Greg said we're going to ignore libit. Yeah. Well, let me give you a different one. Let, let's talk about a sexual uh, uh, an implicit bias having to do with sexism. So one classic study is they gave uh, people resumes uh, for police chief, right? And um, and they varied the groups in terms of what they gave them. They gave them some male candidates and some female candidates. And in one group, they got um, male candidates that were had really good streetwise experience, like lots of beat time. You know, they've been in the projects. They they they've served on the streets for a long time, and then in the, and then they gave them um, women candidates who had really good education. They had master's degrees in criminal justice or advanced degrees and have a lot more of the intellectual background that might be needed. And then the other group they flipped those two, so the men had the intellectual, you know, uh, background and the women had the street smarts. Turns out both groups thought the men were the best candidates. But in one group, they said that the men were the best candidates because what's really needed for this job is to be streetwise. And in the other group, they said, really, the men are the best candidates because really what's needed for this job is all of that stuff you need in training yeah. and administration and to have the kind of budget knowledge and all of that, right? Right. Yeah. But what's the, so why? But in so cases, they, they were going to pick the men anyway. But right. the reasons they're giving are pure confabulations, right? Right. Right. Um, but, but again, but the, there's this, why, I don't, I, I like, I mean, again, minus the uh, 
compatibilism stuff, what Pete was saying was pretty reasonable. And what I would add to that in this case well, is, is that why... in this case? Is it reasonable uh, in this case? Because this case, I think, is different than the pantyhose because the moral significant aspect of this choice is sexism. But yeah. they're unaware of the sexism. They would deny the sexism. And what they're consciously aware of is the confabulated reasoning of either the strength of street smartness or the, the you know. Right. I think that's different than the pantyhose. Uh, well, I mean, the self-worthiness and responsibility are really lurking around here. And so, like, imagine someone just in their, in their, their systematic behaviors, yeah. right? Everything that they do, do of any kind of consequence it, it indicates to everyone else that this is a real sexist asshole. Uh, but they pay all sorts of lip service to uh, equality of the, of the sexes. But they might even believe sexist. sincerely oh. of themselves that they are not sexist. Well, are, the, they, are they like? Are they blameless? Well, are, implicit biases are not always manifest in the sexist. Right? Rationally, consciously, um, you know, let's say I'm not sexist, right? And I and I actually, you know, if, when I had the moment to be expressive of my true self. Uh, if I were aware of these reasonings, I would deny them and I would I would correct for them. I'm a little but, uncomfortable with use of the phrase "true self." Well, that's that's there's the behaviors. I have, I have a hard time. Behave, and then there's the the way you appear to yourself. I think that the right. true self account. I'm not a fan of it. I think they have problems. The true self compatibilist accounts, I think, are about uh, the kind of personal level propositional states that one would take to be identifying of them of themselves but look I mean look this this is all red herrings are flying around left and right so look it's, <laughs> uh, and and Flying you guys are lapping them up so um, let's get back to what's really supposed to be at issue here which is is the person morally responsible for their sexist behavior I say yes they are obviously they are um, uh, the question is Neil Levy and I say no well, okay. Well, then okay, we'll hear we'll hear your answer. Why not? My so what I'm going to say is probably something millions of people have said, which is that through choices they've made, they've developed certain character traits. Those character traits are now manifesting themselves through actions, which might be beneath their rational scrutiny. But they're responsible for making the choices, which led to the uh, solidification of those kinds of character traits. They're also responsible for not doing the kind of introspective self-evaluation which would betray those calcified character flaws and lead them to work on it and confront them. So in those cases, that's what I was saying earlier. In a lot of cases, it may be that our actions are just kind of caused in this way and so maybe, you know, not free in the technical sense of that word, um, any sense of that word, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're not morally responsible for them if you're responsible for the thing which did cause the action. So, you know. That's a, it's sort of a regress there, though, because then the question is, are we truly responsible in the prior conditions that caused me to become this type of yes, person? Yes, you are. Uh, you, if you acted freely, yes, you are. But what about it the big depends bang? depends on what you mean. In, I acted freely liber in a libertarian sense on those earlier choices. Well, of course. That's the only way you get any kind of real moral responsibility in <laughs> anything like this at all is if you get libertarianism. The rest is lip games and fancy footing around, but nothing that's, like, serious. Well, the, that, that, that position is, is essentially Robert Kane's position, which is uh, you have these early what he calls self-forming acts. Yeah. And, and I like uh, the self-forming act stuff. Yeah, okay, so you're aware. Yeah, and so that, if you're early, it, but you would have to defend the ability to make sense of those earlier self-forming acts. So so we need to uh, pause for another break. You mean you let all 
those people died, just to test your creation. Yes. You really are a clever boy. Why did they have to die? You might as well say, why do we have to have evil? Oh, we wouldn't dream of asking a question like that, sir. Yes, why do we have to have evil? Ah. I think it's something to do with free will. Oh. And now we're back from the break. I mean, I would put it in terms, I mean, you know, I like Strawson's article of, what is it, Freedom and Resentment, this one. I mean, he, he comes to this, like, weird conclusion as a result of that article, in my opinion, namely that we don't have freedom of, in the sense that matters, but yet we don't give a shit or something. I mean, that article's hard for me to make sense of. He's like, yeah, we find out the determinism's true, and we go on saying you're a dick, so therefore, who cares? I mean... I guess that's a bad way of putting Galen's argument, but I think that's... No, 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 that's, uh, that's Peter's. That's Peter, that's Peter Strassen. Yeah. Peter, right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, God, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes, that's the, the Strassen. The, the father. Strassen. I know, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Yes, that's the former Strassen. Um, so, I mean, so I always have responded to that in this way. Um, well, look, you're responsible for making yourself that way, and you do it all the time. This is, you know, one of the things we talked about before, this idea that in consciousness there's no momentum. Um, something that Sartre was famous for saying, so that you make a choice and then, you know, that does something, but then the next time that you're doing something, you have to re-choose to act that way again. And sometimes the re-choosing is automatic and you don't think a lot about it, but oftentimes it's not. You have to literally reaffirm the thing so or stance or position. In the initial, in the initial self-forming acts, you, do you think quantum mechanical indeterminacy could preserve enough of the control condition to ground moral responsibility? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by quantum mechanical indeterminacy. So, uh, well, our account, I guess, it percolates up to the level of neural networks. And I'm not sure yeah. what empirical evidence we have at all for thinking it percolates up to the level of neural networks. Well, we have some tiny bit of evidence that um, quantum states are possible in the brain. And this is stuff people like Stuart Hameroff and these quantum consciousness people have been making, a, and Roger Penrose, by the way. Um, yeah. have been making a big deal because for a long time people were saying things like this, like the brain's too hot and wet for the mm -hmm. kinds of quantum states to right. um, to manifest. Right. And now it, it looks like, I mean, and I'm not really super up to date on this stuff, but I hope we're going to talk about this someday with someone on this right. stuff. But uh, it looks like there's maybe some suggestions that there are quantum fluctuations, especially but in the microtubules. But let's, you make one of these Sartrean choices and it turns out it's just random what you uh, end up choosing. Well, I wouldn't say that it's random. I mean, so that's what I said. It depends on what you mean by indeterminism. A lot of people random. assume indeterminism means randomness. Um, random. And, you know, that if that's what Kane means, it's simply stochastic nature of the laws, of the <clears throat> fundamental laws of, 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 of quantum mechanics probabilistic. If that's what it means, I don't think that's enough. Well, um, Keynes has it as a way, a different, like, Keynes has the count, like, you have reason backing, uh, he has a very specific paradigm for these self-forming acts. I think his classic example is a woman who is on a way to a, you know, important job interview, and then there's someone else who's in need or something, uh, and she has good reasons for doing both actions. Right. Right? And so either action she chooses to do they're backed by solid reason. There's reasons backing explanations for why. And then which one actually ultimately happens is a matter of this quantum mechanical, you know, percolation or something that screens out determinacy for a moment. Um, and so it's not only the indeterminacy that's required, it's also the reasons backing explanations and stuff that are required for there to be truly self-forming acts. Right. Um, 
By the I, way, those happen all the time. Just play a video game like Knights of the Old Republic or any any video game. You're, every action is uh, you're either people are gonna. I mean, these are the new versions of these kinds of games. But uh, um, you know, we're familiar. I think it's very common sense the idea that what you choose to do on certain occasions either reinforces uh, a, a kind of person you are, or changes a can can change. Yeah, a kind but of on his account, you, you ultimately almost have to simultaneously be willing both acts. I'm not sure of the psychological plausibility of people with that kind of dual willing. Um, well, you don't have to will both of the acts, but you have to have them both before your mind. So here's the, what I would say. Let, and me, this tell is, my wife, let me tell my wife, I, I, I really wanted to be faithful to you, but I also really wanted to sleep with this stranger. And whichever one I ultimately did was a matter of the quantum indeterminacy, but whichever one happened was, it turned out I was faithful to you, honey, but it was a byproduct of quantum mechanics, and it just well, went down that road. If, the neural this, network went out temporarily. This is your uh, hard indeterminism. So here, let me tell my side of the story, and we'll see what you guys think of it. Because remember, it's not really worked out, and I don't even know if it's consistent. Because who knows? I, I haven't thought about this stuff um, in, in a serious way. Uh, scheduled that for you know the summer, um, just like <laughs> I mentioned earlier. Uh, but anyway, so you know, one of the things that seems to me to matter is that the future is open, um, and when if we really start thinking about what you mean, what's important. Uh, when you think about free will, it's that there's an asymmetry between the past and the future. If if you accept the kind of you know um, uh, the thing that made Nietzsche go to the edge of the abyss and, and stare into the abyss, namely that the the eternal recurrence of the past that it can't be changed, it's always there, it's exactly the same, it's immutable. The past, I I feel that about the past in a certain. I mean, I sort of feel I'm a, I, in my heart I'm a presentist, and I sort of feel like the past is not real. But but I also feel like it's set. You can't change it. But the future doesn't feel that way. The future feels open. Um, and well, now what what do you make of that though? Well, it, it seems to me that what that means is that I have some uh, ability in determining the next quantum state of the world. Or you know, if you think of the world as kind of unfolding according to the the, the shorter function on the wave equations. Uh, and which way the wave's going to collapse into, and all these possibilities are out there, but there's only, if you take a kind of naive realist view about this, there's only one way that actually does come out, um, and those might be due to the choices of people. Now, that's, you know, that's an interpretation of quantum mechanics. Well, where's, which, the control, where's the control condition in this event causal and determinist account? Well, it's the that you are able to, uh, you know, you might think of it in, in sort of, uh, you know, in terms of the future being in a superimposed state, um, as between the various outcomes of your action, and that by choosing you collapse that superposition. I don't. Into, I, let me put pressure on this. Into I, one, into one actual way that the world is. I don't get. I don't see how you get you-ness out of this. And let's consider a thought experiment. So suppose there's some kind of strings attached to you. There's uh, some kind of mad scientist or something like that. Is they they are uh, directly causing what's got, which of these, um, uh, you know, as Greg described, there's these two things that you will. Um, and uh, the, the the scientist has a device that, uh, depending on what switch is flipped, it will cause one of those uh, desires of yours to be activated as opposed to the other. But the scientist has the switches hooked up to a Geiger counter. It's like measuring decaying um, uranium. And so it's a, some quantum indeterminacy is going to determine which of those switches 
It's yeah. a quantum determinacy that's not happening inside of you in the literal sense of being contained right. inside of your brain. It's happening in the laboratory where the scientist has got the switches set up. Right. And uh, I don't know, maybe some people have the intuition that, that that's not, it's not happening in you, whatever you end up doing. Well, I think that's, that's a different kind of case. I mean, I'm by talking way, about... Uh, by the way, I have, in my book, I have actually that type of criticism against uh, Kane. I, I take a case where it seems on Kane's account, what's more important is the temporal moment in which the indeterminacy occurs, not the local location. Uh -huh. I do an externalized account of the, the, you know, this guy, you know, had just got divorced and he both wants to finish the doghouse for Philo, but also was thinking about harming himself. And the quantum indeterminacy happens in the saw blade instead okay. of the neural network. It fits nice. all the same conditions of Kane's account, but for some yeah. reason, we, I think most of us have an intuition that that doesn't seem to be free will. Well, right, but I that was at my account, though, so I mean that's too bad for Kane. But what about what I was saying? <laughs> but you, but, but what I'm putting pressure on is like, who gives a shit about indeterminacy? Like, if yeah, and I, I already agreed with you. No one gives a shit about indeterminacy unless you're talking about a certain kind of indeterminacy, not randomness, not simply indeterminate processes, not simply stochastic probabilistic things, but agent causation in a non-determinate, indeterminate way. That's something different. So what well, I wait, said was causing, that the agent, yes, no, it's not. This is my, we're talking about my view. We're talking about, you asked me what I thought. Oh, well, then you're, okay, so I didn't realize <laughs> you're just that you're an agent causal theorist. You're not just. Well, I'm a, not any kind of causal theorist. I'm talking about what I think is true. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm not going to be put into a box because I haven't subscribed to any of these newsletters. <laughs> I don't give a shit about what you call it. What I'm yeah. telling you, though, is that. Um, what, what I'm saying is that uh, the kind of indeterminacy that matters is this kind of indeterminacy, um, namely that the future state of the world cannot be um, predicted from previous states, so that's just normal quantum stuff, but then also that I, as an agent, bring about in a non-determinate way which state of the world comes next. Or, in other words, how the wave function unfolds. You, in the you bring it out, but you don't bring it out because it's what you prefer most. I, I bring it. I mean, I'm, I'm floating a, a, the hypothesis that I bring it about, uh, maybe because it's what I prefer most, but only if I, like, endorse or approve that, because I can also prefer it most but withhold myself from doing it. And that's happened before. But don't, uh, you, if, if you withheld it, you, you would be withholding it not because you prefer to withhold it. No, I might prefer not to withhold it. I might prefer, I mean, you know. There's, this, a, way of, there's a way of describing this where it sounds deterministic. There's, there's what you prefer, and that causally determines you to, to withhold, which causally determines you to act. No, there's something that I prefer, which gives me a reason that I can take into consideration and then but, decide to act on or not. And then you say, oh, but what's your decision based on? It's, not ba it's based on me deciding to act on that preference or not. But there's no answer to the question, why did you decide? Um, well, if it's indeterminate, yes, there is. I decided. That's the. I mean, what this this is the kind of games that people play. I guess that gives philosophers a bad name. But look, uh, the reason that I decided is that I decided. I I weighed the considerations and then I came to a decision. That's why. So there's I no there's no non circular <laughs> explanation for your deciding. The, the re you decided because you decided. You're the decider. And if you had decided the other way, the same answer would apply. Yes, that's what makes, yes, exactly. I am the arbiter of, I mean, I don't, yeah, so. But why say that you decided instead of the universe decided? It was some indeterminacy in the universe. 
The universe well, because I'm the, wasn't written. I'm the cause of this action. I mean, it's the I is the agent. MZ. The universe didn't cause this action. I did. Um, so that's the claim under consideration is that me or you or a person uh, as an agent causes maybe certain events in their brain, um, which then in turn do various things. Uh, sort of dualistic. The, the universe doesn't do it um, because um, the universe is not the cause of these particular events. I mean, we have clear. I mean, causation's a mess, but we have some. I mean, you know, we have to tell some story by which what's causing me picking this up right now is me and not the Big Bang. So even you guys have some story about which causes matter and how those relate and produce the things that they produce. So I'm not sure why this is especially pressing in my case. Well, well, I know we're nearing the time and you got to go, but I mean, I'm curious what the metaphysical status of this agent is on this account, though, because I mean, Cain tries. Think it's a, br a brain. Okay, because Cain tries to do it just with all events, not. I mean, what normally is thought of as agent causation is a kind of either dualistic or radically emergentist account of an agent. Right, uh, and you could have those kind of views. So, and you know, maybe Aristotle's view is hylomorphism. You know, so who knows? But I'm thinking what an agent is is simply, you know, my brain, I, my nervous me in the body of the. In a, uh, that's it. That's what an agent is. It's not a special kind of substance. It's just a and, physical. And then, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't. I just. I, I have to think more about the specific. But you have uncaused brain states. Yeah. Um, well, they're caused by me. They're, well, but you are the brain states. Yeah, they're caused by me. That's what I just said. So the brain states cause themselves. <laughs> uh, if you want to put it that way, I don't think that's a terribly bad way of putting it, um, or that I would say that I cause them. Um, uh, so it's a mere verbal. There's no. There's just a verbal distinction between uncaused brain states and self-caused brain states. Well, they're not. Yeah, they're not caused in the sense of having some determinant preceding cause or even some. Uh, yeah, I mean, so what can you do? Um, some things are basic. This might be basic, um, but I don't think it's it's dualistic or non-physicalistic. I mean, look, there are some interpretations of quantum mechanics on which this is, you know, a totally natural and normal way of doing stuff. Um, uh, a way maybe it reads too much into the idea of an observer, and I know there's ways of talking about quantum mechanics where you don't need that uh, because it's really measurement, not observation, that's doing the work, and I understand that. Um, and you could also have many universe theories, and I get that. Well, I'm just trying to explore one option here, which doesn't seem to me refuted, which is the claim that, you know, the future is this massively intertwined, superimposed thing, and that free actions of people collapse it into various determinant-like things. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be a crazy view, and quantum mechanics doesn't rule. I mean, I just don't see why. Why? What rules it out? Well, I would say well, Einstein rules it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, how does Einstein rule it out? Well, you know, um, what what counts as the future is going to be reference frame relative. There's a reference frame uh, in, you know, if you get sufficiently far away from us, there's a reference frame centered on, like, uh, the far side of the Milky Way galaxy where what's what's happening at the same time includes what Greg, Richard, and Pete would call 235 years in the future. Yeah, I mean, so there's a... According that's to that reference frame, that's... That's already happened. Whatever is going to be yeah. happening in 2030 or 235 years in our future, that's already set. So yeah, it's not open. You don't get open this, futures. Sorry, but the problem with your view here is that you're assuming there's an observer there. Uh, frames of reference don't just exist without, without observer. I mean, there's not a frame of reference in Consciousness Alpha is Centauri. not built into Einstein. You, you don't. 
if, if look, if on, cer on, on certain views about quantum mechanics, all there is is the, uh, is the Schrodinger equation, that of stuff unfolding according to it, and unless you make a measurement, there is no fucking frame of reference in Alpha Centauri. So unless there's people over there measuring stuff or some kind of, you know, maybe decoherence and objective... It's a big open question whether you need consciousness for measurement. Maybe you can have measurement without consciousness. That's right. So it's a big open question whether right. the story you're telling okay. is even coherent, which is my point. Well, so it hasn't been proven incoherent. That's well, right. You asked my, what contradicts your story, and I said... No, you said you like Einstein. I like Einstein, too, but you can have a quantum version of Einstein where everything Einstein said is true, and a different interpretation of quantum mechanics is invoked, and you don't have this bread loaf slice thing problem. So you can be a presentist and get around these Einsteinian worries. I don't think this is a convincing argument one way or the other. Now, it does commit you to something down the road. I, I get that. And look, I'm not, I don't know if this is true. I'm just, you know, we're just having a conversation, and I'm defending this because you guys are attacking it, to be honest with you. And I don't know if I really believe it or not. So let me just go on the record and tell the, you know, the people who are, anyone who pays attention to any of this, that I'm not committed to this view. I just don't see that it's ruled out, and you can't just beat me up with Einstein, because I know that... I wouldn't. I, I mean, my, my reasons, I guess, would be, uh, one, philosophical, you know, can we really ground the control conditions on this type of account that are needed for more response? I'm dubious of that. Yeah, I would what? question, empirically, the kind of... Re I know it hasn't been ruled out, but the, the kind of percolating up to the level of neural networks that we would need, I think, to make sense of it is an empirical question, so we have to leave that open. Yeah, um, and you know, uh, but, 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 but hold on. Can I just say, look, my point though was that you guys are presenting the case as though we start with knowledge that libertarianism is ruled out, unless no, you're, unless you're a crazy dualist, and we're none of us here are really dualists. So uh, you guys are seeing me have this position that unless you have a weird metaphysical view about dualism then we should start with the assumption that libertarianism has been ruled out and look at what our options are. Oh, no, right? no, no, no. No, for me, I mean, I spend time dealing with both types of libertarianism, event causal and agent causal. And I think the sophisticated versions are the naturalistic accounts in event causal libertarianism. And they're, and Kane and others uh, are, you know, they're sophisticated accounts that totally need to be addressed. I think that they sort of fell purely on philosophical grounds. I mean, Pureboom has arguments against them on what he calls the disappearing agent account. Um, it, it just seems to me, and even agent causal libertarians would criticize it because it seems to be what you really need is the not only the negative condition of not being causally determined, which quantum mechanics might get you, but for the agent causal people, an active agent. Uh, yeah. And that's where they go metaphysical, where you're not willing to go. Um, so I think that position gets squeezed from both sides. You know, those who who think it's not enough, you know, the, the agent causal people who think it's not enough, and from those who question whether we are really preserving a kind of control condition that... Well, we're preserving I, the claim that you could have done otherwise, and that, so if, that's if, the, not if, the, if the future is really indeterminate, I mean, literally superimposed as between heads or tails, and it's something you do that brings it, and it's by the way not determined cause. I'm not sure what the you doing part is. That's why I'm not clear. Well, nobody that. knows how the wave function is collapsed. So I mean, you know, fill, do some quantum mechanics, and we'll figure out. Is that, you? Uh, that that's my. Is that within your control? I'm claiming that it's a possibility that it is. That's what freedom might be: simply collapsing the wave function in a certain way. 
How um, do you collapse, collapse the wave function? Now, do you collapse? We don't the know wave how you collapse the wave. This is called the measurement problem. No one has an answer to this question, Greg. That's but, kind of the point I'm making. But do you have a way in which collapsing one over another is an act of yours? Yes, I'm. Claiming, well, I'm sort of. Cheat on, wife, I don't cheat on my wife in this situation. It's collapsing a wave function. Yeah. And whichever I end up doing, it was me who did it. Yes. That's the claim I'm floating. That you, that you as an agent, uh, it's not impossible unless, and unless, and I didn't say, I, I said it's possibly not even consistent, so I'm not 100% on board with this view. I'm merely floating it to see like, and I haven't been convinced by any of the things you guys are saying, so you know, I'm, not, I'm not terribly, um, uh, I, what's the old phrase that these philosophers used to use? Um, it, does, it doesn't find it odd. Um, on first reflection before bedtime, <laughs> or whatever those. But so the idea is that if the if the future is indeterminate in this sense, then um, making a con consciousness or observation or something like that might play this role, and it, it might be me that decides, and this might be uncaused. It might be me that decides which way the wave. I mean, look. So here's here's a, an analogy and this I'm totally speculating so if this is all wrong I admit that but if I could just speculate so if you if you guys know about quantum teleportation I'm not sure if you're aware of this kind of thing that people are doing right now but um, so it, it comes about because of entanglement so you can entangle two particles um, uh, and then what that means is if you do a measurement on one of the particles it something will be true about the other particle okay so if you measure its spin and you know spin only has these certain attributes, it can be up or down or whatever. Um, if you measure it this way here, it has to be the opposite way over there. I mean, that's oversimplified, but that's entanglement, right? right. So now one way that uh, what's called quantum teleportation is where, and it's just teleportation of information, so it's not really that exciting, but physicists like it. Um, uh, so you take another particle that has a certain state, the state that you want to teleport. Um, uh, it could be a certain spin state or a certain uh, whatever it is um, and of course that will matter because you can encode information in spin states and so forth and so on so it's interesting um, so you encode that and then so you have these two particles that are entangled and they're but they're physically separated and they've done this I think as far as like across a river but in theory it should work no matter where in the universe you are so you entangle these two particles you remove them you send one over there one over here then you have a third particle that you want to teleport it to the entangled particle. So you entangle it now with the one you have in your lab. Uh -huh. You entangle it. And you perform a measurement on it. Okay. Um, the measurement that you perform on it, you get the information. You get what, what state was revealed to you and you write it down. And then you call up the people in the other lab in the other place and you say to them, here's what I observed. I measured it and it's this. Okay. That then allows them to determine which measurement they should make in order to get the thing that they have, which they have not measured yet, to come up to be in the state of the original um, uh, uh, thing that they want to teleport. So if it's a spin-up state and you entangle it and then you measure this, you'll get a spin-up state there. Yeah. And you didn't do anything. You just measured one thing here, but you did it strategically. You did it in such a way so as to force the next state the next quantum state of the system to be the one that you wanted it to be, the one that you're trying to... Now, of course, you know, that's, you know, all metaphorical, but what I'm suggesting is that maybe something, by determining next state of the system, something like that could be happening, whereby we sort of, outside the system, decide which, how to collapse the states in the right way. Now, how does that work? I don't know. I mean, this is all speculation. Maybe I don't even get the analogy, though. 
I mean, the, the analogy seems to me that there's an external there's an external observer that could collapse it. And this, in the case where free will you're trying to describe, I don't see the analogy of a separate external agent. Right. Well, I mean, that's this is uh, again where maybe a kind of higher order awareness or something like that could play a role because there's in the external agent. <laughs> what do you mean? You're, the awareness of your own mental functioning is playing a lot, a lot uh, some kind of role here possibly. But to go back to Pete's question, the, um, the analogy is supposed to be this. How could it be possible that you could, because you, you were saying before, collapsing wave functions happens all the time. Um, but, but what I'm suggesting is that it might happen you know, um, on purpose or in a way such that we bring it about that the next state is that this is here as opposed to remaining still there. And I was suggesting as an analogy, well, what could that even mean to strategically collapse a wave function? And so that's what I was suggesting as a kind of metaphor analogy. Um, the way that we talk about quantum teleportion and the way we do it, it involves exploiting stuff about quantum mechanics in a way to make the world come out the way that we want it to as opposed to the way that it just naturally evolves. So now, of course, that involves a kind of external agency. That, that's what Greg was saying. It involves an external agent sort of imposing order on the system from outside. Right. Now, of course, you know, I, I think that you can make sense of that from inside the brain, um, but maybe you can't. Maybe you have to right. be pushed to have some kind of, you know, to bring up Arvin's work again um, and his kind of, you know, uh, simulation, his simulation theory hypothesis. This fits well with that, but I think it could, you could do it from within the brain. I think that, but then again, I'm just, I'm just speculating, but I don't think that. Yeah, you uh, are. <laughs> yeah, wild speculation, but if you can't speculate on a show called Space Time Mind, then what can you? I mean, <laughs> all right, guys, I've got to go. Thanks for the uh, chat. I enjoyed it. Yeah, good Greg Caruso. Greg. That was great. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk to you later, man. Cool. Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandick saying...
Does it seem intuitively wrong to say that there is no such thing as subjective experience? It certainly is intuitively wrong, yes, indeed. If there's anything that's intuitively wrong, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong.